0: Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast about the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to McGill Mindfulness in Medicine podcast. I'm Patrick Mooney and today I'm joined by my fellow medical students Zoe O'Neill and Hanson Zhao. Uh, as well as our guest, Dr. Alan Steverman, a family physician from here in Montreal with a focused practice in chronic pain and a particular interest in mindfulness-based approaches to chronic pain management. Um, today we'll be talking about the role of mindfulness in training and physician wellness, as well as the role it can play in direct patient care. Uh, thank you for joining us, everybody, especially uh, you, Dr. Steverman.
2: Pleasure to be here.
0: So just to begin, for those who are maybe less familiar with what you do outside of teaching, how would you describe what you do professionally?
2: Okay, so as Patrick mentioned, I'm a family physician by training, but I've had a focused practice for many years, most, most of my practice actually, um, and it primarily focuses on chronic pain management and physical rehab. So I work uh, primarily out of two places. One of them is at the pain clinic at the Shim, which is my primary practice, which is a tertiary care Uh, Pain Center at the University of Montreal Hospital and I also do some rehab work at a rehabilitation facility in Laval and part of what I do as well related to my pain work is work with groups of patients with a mindfulness based chronic pain management group which I do out of the SHIM as well as out of a uh, group practice uh, where psychologists work uh, outside of uh, of the hospital setting.
0: And How did you get involved in the mindfulness curriculum at McGill Medicine?
2: So, um, I have been sort of in the world of mindfulness in my clinical practice for several years, um, and I think the the way I, I sort of got connected was I was at the, a whole person congress. So for those of you who may not know this, the, um, mindful medical practice, uh, program really fits under whole person care at McGill which is uh, something that was, uh, that's run by uh, Tom Hutchison and Stephen Lieben as well is involved. And uh, they put on a Congress uh, every couple of years. So I believe I was at the Congress and uh, there was a physician there that I knew uh, who was also involved in Mindful Medical Practice and teaching of Gil, Joanna Carroll, And uh, Joanna knew about some of the clinical work that I do and introduced me to Tom and Stephen. And eventually I came on board to help teach the course with them.
0: And just to kind of lay the groundwork for the rest of our discussion, how do you define mindfulness?
2: Okay, um, so I guess I'll, I'll give you I'll give you first the sort of the, the more uh, I was going to say general or mostly used definition, which is a, a, a John Cabibb's, you know, inspired definition that I'll paraphrase. But mindfulness is the awareness that arises. By paying attention or bringing attention in a particular way to the present moment without judgment—that's kind of the—that's the 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 more standard definition. And I'll give you sort of the non-standard definition because I, I sometimes use this when I'm working particularly with groups of patients who may find that first definition a little bit uh, not so concrete. And this comes from Dan Harris. So. Dan Harris is a American correspondent who, um, those of you who know a little bit about mindfulness know that Dan Harris wrote a couple of books and he was a very unlikely person that you would, who, to get interested in mindfulness. But his definition, at least from one of his books, is mindfulness is the ability, again I'm paraphrasing this, something like the ability to see what's going on in your mind so you don't get carried away by it. So that's kind of the, the two definitions that I usually keep in mind.
0: Mm. Yeah, that Dan Harris one is is very easy to follow and it's quite accessible, I agree. So how did you personally become interested in mindfulness? And when did that happen for you?
2: So um, it happened quite a while ago, actually, and it had absolutely nothing to do with my work. So I, um, I got interested in mindfulness and heard about mindfulness shortly after I finished my residency. So this is going back... Not quite 20 years, but close to that. Um, and I was um, just I don't know how I heard about it, but I heard about John Cabotson and I uh, was really curious about what this was. And at the time I, uh, although I'd heard about MBSR, there wasn't anyone offering MBSR in Montreal um, in the first year that I got interested in it. And then my plan was to actually go down um, to where John Cabotson was and train with him and because I had a young child that didn't happen. But luckily, there there were a couple psychologists who um, were bringing MBSR uh, to Montreal. So um, I met one of them and did MBSR training with her, uh, which was great. And again, it was really for my own personal personal interest, personal development, um, finding tools, techniques to uh, deal with stress. So really never thinking that I would necessarily, uh, not necessarily, I, I certainly wasn't thinking that this w- was going to play a role in my professional life, but it was really as a personal exploration.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So how do you practice mindfulness in your life? Do you do it on a daily basis? And if so, what what does that look like for you?
2: The answer to that will really varies, I would say. And it, it, going back to when I first um, was exposed to mindfulness and read about it and did an MBSR training. And, and until today, there, there's been like sort of waves of up and down. So there were, you know, I, I did MBSR training. And, and for those of you who've ever done a course like that, you can get very involved and very interested in it. And then, sort of, as time goes on and the course is further and further in your past, sometimes it kind of falls to the wayside. So I, I kind of did that for a little while. I uh, then did an MBSR, I did some more MBSR training and then uh, had a sort of a regular meditation practice for a while and then that kind of uh, disappeared. And I would tell you in the, in the last few years, especially since this has become part of my professional work as well, it's much more uh, ingrained in my life on a personal level for sure um, but also with the overlap in the sense that it, it's if you're going to be offering mindfulness teaching and training um, to patients or to healthcare professionals, you really need to have your own personal practice. It's not its not the kind of um, training um, or um, teaching or guidance that you can really offer if you don't have your own practice. So I would tell you that in the last few years, again, with varying degrees of, of involvement, I've had uh, a regular mindfulness practice and we can get into it later if. Uh, if you want about what that means, but certainly part of it involves meditation, so I do have a regular meditation practice, um, and by regular meditation practice means usually daily, uh, I say usually not always, um, but it's certainly it's not, um, I don't have a lot of time to, to spend in meditation, so I don't meditate two hours a day, um, but I do try to find a few minutes at some point in my day, regardless of how busy I am, to really set time aside and practice meditation. In regards to the field of
3: medicine as a whole, why do you think personal wellness and mindfulness is important?
2: Um, well, I, I think um, personal wellness or, or trying to keep um Keep ourselves healthy is obviously important, regardless of, of our professional path. Uh, specifically, when it comes to uh, working in healthcare, there are challenges that are that are shared with other fields, but that are particular to healthcare as well. Uh, and those challenges require um, or are are easier to meet. The more resilient we are. So resilience is a whole a whole conversation in and of itself, but um, I do think that resilience is is complex, and there there are certainly genetic factors and factors from our upbringing and our childhood and all those things that come into play. But I also really strongly believe that resilience is not a fixed. Uh, quantity, in that we do have a lot more, I think, input and ability to increase our resilience than we think we might, and it really involves um, all kinds of lifestyle habits, so, uh, you know, everything from basic things like eating well and sleeping well and exercising and all that stuff, Um, but I certainly think that mindfulness and meditation can play an important role uh, in increasing and maintaining resilience. So I think to answer your question, uh, I think resilience is a big piece of what um, is important uh, in our personal and professional lives as healthcare workers.
3: Thank you for your view on resilience. That's really interesting. Um, And from leading these courses, especially with so many medical students under your guidance, have you noticed if there are challenges specific to the medical education, whether it's as a medical student or resident, that these students face when um, you know coming into the field of medicine for the first time?
2: I think so. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's obviously it's a very individual um, experience, and and um, everyone's. Uh, challenges and concerns and things they worry or stress about are different. But what what's interesting at the same time is, um, and those of you who who have done the mindful medical practice course, may have realized that it's one place where you have the opportunity to be with a group of twenty or so classmates. Uh, and I think for some people, there's a real um, deep realization, or I don't know if it's if it's a new realization, or I think for some people it is that. Although you're all very different, you're all, or many of you, having the same worries and the same stresses. And I think that's one of the powerful pieces of the course, when you kind of realize, okay, I'm not alone. And even, you know, that person who seems to have it all together and knows the differential diagnosis of uh, pheochromocytoma or something like that, you know, they have the same worries and the same concerns that you do. Um, so. Where those come from, and I think that's part of maybe your question, where, where do the, the, these worries and concerns come from? I think it's some of them are personal. Um, people who, who arrive in medical school um, often have certain traits that make them perhaps more uh, driven to succeed, uh, to not make mistakes, to know everything, which is obviously impossible. So part of it is personal. Uh, part of it sometimes is cultural. There is a, um, I think there there is a medical culture or a culture within medicine, uh, or there at least there was for for a long time that it somehow is not always uh, didn't always feel welcoming to allowing for error and allowing for not being perfect. I think that, I think there's a shift. I hope there's a shift. I hope mindful medical practice is contributing to the shift. Um, but I think it's still there. So I think all of those factors come together and make it that for some people, it it certainly can be a challenge uh, to be through it too. I I think for everyone, medical school is a challenge, but I think those are some of the factors that make make it so.
3: Earlier, you mentioned um, with your definition of resilience and how healthy habits, healthy sleeping, some exercise are part of that component and how you think that mindfulness actually helps build that resilience. I was wondering if you could expand a bit more on that, on how mindfulness practices for on a personal level for students and residents can, you know, increase or um,
2: adapt their resilience to what they face. So yeah, so I, I'll try to give a, a brief answer because it's I think it's it's probably a longer answer that would that that would really completely um, address it but the last piece of your question was about you said something to the effect of what people face so I think one of the core um, qualities that mindfulness can provide is a better ability to know what we're facing at the time that we're facing it so you know the the at its core, mindfulness is really about attention, um, so bringing attention but doing it or and doing it in a way that brings in non-judgment, so about being aware of what's going on in a certain moment. and By being aware, we mean being aware of, of what's going on inside of us, what's going on outside of us. Um, and Inside of us usually involves thoughts, uh, physical sensations, and emotions. Being able to be aware of it, to bring as best as we can non-judgment to it, um, and the ability to um, be present with what's going on. So, back to your question, how, what does this have to do with resilience? So resilience, again, it, it's about um, our ability to adapt to stressful times. One thing that makes it really hard to adapt to something that's stressful is when we have, when we feel that we're completely out of control, and we don't know, um, we don't really have a sense of what's going on. We're our thoughts are all over the place, our feelings are all over other place, our physical sensations are all over the place. That's that's the opposite of resilience. If we have an ability, and again, not, this is not a perfect science, right? And, and we, we do this as best as we can, but if we have an ability in a moment of stress, in a moment of, uh, of challenging times, to bring ourselves back to the present moment, to know what are we feeling, what's going on in our mind, Uh, What emotions are we having? I think it makes it much more likely that we'll be able to face that moment with more resilience.
3: I definitely agree. Um, I feel like before I was able to become present and at least be aware of what was stressing me out, I would just feel completely overwhelmed and not even be sure about what it is that's affecting me. Look for even more answers elsewhere that create even more stress, and never having that time to just sit down with myself and feel what's happening to me.
2: And and I think you know one of the misconceptions. Uh, well, there's two I'm going to mention. One one is that you know we 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 think of stress as a negative thing, right? And the, the reality is that. Stressors will always exist, and they're not, stressors are not in and of themselves bad. What affects us is how we respond to them, right? And the other misconception that I think some people might think what mindfulness is about is either they think it's about relaxation, which it's not, or they think that mindfulness is about somehow becoming um, more robot-like and not feeling things and not being affected by things, um, which is not at all the way I understand mindfulness and be, to be honest I don't think it would be a particularly interesting uh, way to want to live to sort of become um, immune and, and not feeling things. So being present and being aware of what's going on is not wanting to remove what's going on, because sometimes what's going on is, is great and it's, pleasurable. Sometimes what's going on is awful and terrible. And being mindful about it is not wanting to negate what's going on, but about being aware of what's going on. And when you're aware of what's going on, then you have choices of what where you go next. So, that that's the big piece that I think, um, and it took me a while, and I know when I teach mindfulness, although you keep coming back and, and sort of explaining, listen, it's not mindfulness is not positive thinking, it's not about relaxation, but we, we tend to sort of we would love it in some way, you know, some people, it would be such a great thing if it was just some quick fix pill that you just access and you feel great. Um, but it, but it isn't. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's, it's so much richer. What what it actually is, is actually much richer than just something that makes you feel good on the moment. It has a lot more potential. Absolutely.
3: Thank you. Um, on that topic of uh, some misconceptions that people might have, um, how do you Usually, response to these misconceptions and have has there been some kind of uh, pushback within the medical culture uh, in regards to mindfulness practice and how do you address those as well
2: it's a it's a huge question and i think some it's a question that's certainly changed dramatically Um, just the fact that we're having this conversation that you guys have put this together already I think is a testament that you know 10 years ago or 15 years ago I'm not sure medical students would have felt particularly comfortable to even mention the word mindfulness or certainly not maybe they would have had it in their personal lives but I'm not sure they would have necessarily got together and and engaged in a more in professional circles um does that mean that it's accepted by everyone as being valuable in medicine certainly not and you you will um, I'm sure I'm sure there's still pushback I mean I can give you a little bit of what my experience was so when I started thinking um, well I'll, I'll tell you if you're interested I can maybe tell you a little bit about why I, I decided to pursue mindfulness for chronic pain and it'll give you a bit of insight into how how it went about bringing into into a, not just a medical uh, setting but an academic medical setting so I've been working in chronic pain management for years um, and what we do in, in chronic pain management, in particular in tertiary care uh, centers, is what you traditionally would imagine we do. We diagnose, we uh, do treatment plans, we prescribe medications, we do injections, we send people for physiotherapy, psychotherapy, occupational, but the, whole, the whole sort of gamut of what medicine can offer. And all of that is quite helpful for a lot of patients, at the same time they're one of my observations was, and I wasn't, I wasn't the first to make this observation, is that there, there seems to be a piece that sometimes is missing, that, that we're not addressing. Um, and I had my personal mindfulness meditation practice, which had nothing to do with my chronic pain work, but it sort of started getting me thinking, well, are there some of the concepts, some of the, the, the practices that we do in mindfulness and meditation, could this be helpful and useful for uh, chronic pain patients? Now, for those of you who know a little bit about Jon Kabat-Zinn's work, when he originally developed mindfulness-based stress reduction, he, it was for chronic pain conditions in general, which included chronic pain, um, uh, sorry, sorry, I meant chronic medical conditions, which included chronic pain. Um, but then it, it sort of got really, the focus was really mindfulness-based stress reduction. So all to say is that um, I got interested in thinking whether mindfulness could be a to chronic pain. I was very fortunate to find um, Dr. Jackie Gardner-Nix who is a colleague uh, and chronic pain physician from Toronto and Jackie had developed a uh, MBSR-inspired program that had morphed into a new program uh, which is the one that I work with which is mindfulness-based chronic pain management. So all to say is that when I came across Jackie's work and decided to do training with Jackie, I didn't necessarily think that I would actually necessarily be bringing the program to the hospital where I worked just because I wasn't really sure anyone would be all that interested uh, or open to it. And I was lucky that one of my colleagues uh, sort of pushed me to mention it to the clinic director and I was very lucky, at least within our setting, that she was extremely supportive. She had no idea what mindfulness was, she had no idea what it was about, but she had enough trust that said listen if you think it's it's there's enough evidence and it makes sense and you want to give it a shot go for it so i've been lucky so i, I again it's it was it was pretty unique to have that inside the the walls of a of a academic hospital center uh, but it's been accepted and it, and it's grown from there so to me that's a positive sign of there is some acceptance but i'm sure there are some skeptics that would would still kind of raise their their eyes or eyebrows at that
1: um, so trying to springboard off that question, I think, um, for those of us, including myself, who aren't as familiar with some of the more um, evidence based mindful practices, we've heard of uh, MBSR, so mindfulness based stress reduction, we've heard of mindful, uh, mindfulness based cognitive therapy, can you kind of elaborate on how those work for those of us who aren't familiar with, uh, with maybe the medicalized side of mindfulness?
2: Yeah, so that, that's, a, I think, an interesting and important question. So first thing I'll, I'll, I'll tell you right off the bat is that um, I have, uh, although I, I, I know more MBSR, uh, I, I did small parts of the MBCT training, but I, I'm familiar with the program, but I, I'm by no means an expert in, in those programs. The program that I work with, uh, which is Mindfulness Based Chronic Pain Management, is the one that I know best. Uh, but I can speak to you about the evidence in general. And the, the, the truth is, the evidence, there, there has been, there is evidence for all of those programs individually. But a lot of these sort of more, um, the larger studies have looked at what often the studies will sort of group them together and you'll see research done on MBIs, which is mindfulness based interventions. They don't always distinguish between them. Um, You know, your your question, Patrick, is about the evidence from a a sort of more medicalized point of view. And it's interesting because I I, I've been asked in the you know last few years to talk about these programs and present to at at conferences and congresses where the what you're presenting, you know, as you can imagine, in the era of evidence-based medicine, people want to see the evidence. And then what what do we mean by evidence? Um, there's, you can have clinical evidence where you actually look at patient outcomes. You can have um, more neurophysiological evidence where you're looking at scans and EEGs and MRIs. And the great thing, I mean, the, the reality is meditation and mindfulness isn't new. It's been around for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And I, I think that there is enough, evidence that it has some benefits in all kinds of different uh, spheres and in different parts of the world. Having said that, Western medicine wants to see the evidence. So, um, What I can tell you uh, is that there's a whole field of contemplative neurosciences uh, which is really an emerging field where uh, there um, is an attempt to really try to understand at the level of the brain what is meditation doing? What is mindfulness doing, and how is it helpful? So, um, I'll sort of try to summarize the sort of the more, more robust evidence as best as I understand it. So, um, the the uh, interestingly enough, um, the um, I was going to name someone, and his name escapes me. So uh, I'll, I'll come back to if I if I remember his name. Um, but the uh, a lot of the evidence comes from MRI studies and EEG studies. And what they've looked at is uh, what happens in the brain when uh, someone meditates. And what's really interesting is that there is evidence that there are areas of the brain which actually shift. Um, and you'll hear a lot in the literature on uh, meditation and mindfulness about what they call the, defo- the default mode network. So the default mode network, or the DMN, is a... A network of different regions within the brain that uh, are connected, and um, to to really simplify things, the DMN is the network that kicks in when we're not uh, focusing on a specific task. So it's when when you're not when you're not focused on a certain task, your mind kind of goes into this network where you're you're uh, having sort of um, ruminations, worries, thoughts—like not, not nothing specific, but just your mind is wandering. What we also know is that the more time you spend in the default mode network, the—and uh, I'm really simplifying things here—but the the more unhappy you are. So a wandering mind is an unhappy mind, and it seems that people who meditate regularly decrease the. Amount of time that their brain spends in the default mode network. So that's kind of one of the uh, general um, ways that we understand how uh, meditation can be helpful. Uh, that's specific. That's sort of in, in, a, in a general sense. Um, some of the evidence that I that I'm more familiar with, of course, because it pertains to the work I do, uh, is in the chronic pain setting. And again, without going into too much detail, are um, Understanding of chronic pain uh, is that it has a it, it has to do with what's called uh, central sensitization. So people that when you go from acute pain to subacute pain and eventually to chronic pain, there are actually changes that occur in the brain, um, and these changes make it so that the experience of pain is heightened. Now, the way we think mindfulness and meditation may help regulate pain is really in two ways, and they you can see this on functional MRI, is that the areas of the brain that um, have to do with evaluating pain, so sort of the executive functioning and the, the areas of the brain that will uh, worry about the pain, catastrophize about the pain, and not bring all the thoughts around the pain, In people who meditate, those areas of the brain actually quiet down. At the same time, our brain has its own natural ability to inhibit pain. We have inhibitory uh, uh, um, sections that really dull down pain. This is just sort of innate. Meditators or people who meditate regularly also have increased activity in those areas of the brain, so you're really getting a a two-pronged effect where your one area that it normally would enhance pain experiences gets shut down and the part of the brain that um, is able to dull down pain uh, is able to work better in meditators. Does that make sense?
3: It does make sense um,
2: and actually making me wonder
3: why do you think that the brain tends to sensitize these unpleasant feelings? Um, when you know, usually we, we want to focus on pleasurable things, pleasurable sensations. Is there perhaps a component of the default mode network that tries to heighten the signal of pain that we try to avoid and we try to push it out? Whereas in meditators, if we can, if they redirect their default mode network to be aware of the pain and giving it um, more awareness. Is, is that why maybe that, uh, that the sensitization decreases in meditators? I don't know if the question is clear enough.
2: I think so, I, I, you know it, it would be hard for me to, uh, to give you a very specific answer, at least from a neurophysiological point of view. I don't know exactly um, if there is evidence about the default mode network, specifically in, in meditators who have chronic pain what I can tell you, though, is that, and and for those of you who, who who remember this from MMP, you'll remember the concept that when a patient comes to see us, they don't they're not coming to see us because they have pain. They're coming to see us because they're suffering. Okay, and and you can replace pain with other. You know, there's other. F- that pain is one of the origins of suffering, but there are many other origins. So suffering equals pain times something, okay? And you'll see this in different ways. You'll see it times resistance, times whatever. So the, what really seems to increase suffering or really be the major source of the suffering is not so much the physical sensation of the pain, but it's what the pain, what the meaning of the pain has. In terms of uh, how it's impacted someone's function, what they're no longer able to do, uh, how it's changed their um, professional life, their personal life. So back to what I, to bring it back to what I was saying earlier, all of that, uh, those areas of the brain that are uh, focused on um, thinking about the pain, uh, meaning of the pain, worrying about the pain, that is really one of the major sources of suffering. So I think what's probably happening. Uh, is when we are able to quiet down those those areas of the brain, the suffering that comes from that pain decreases. I'm not sure that totally answers your question, but I've, no, yeah. no, it does. Um,
3: it's really interesting. I'm kind of from the way you're describing it, picturing this this sensation that you know activates a certain certain cluster of neurons and that's the pain itself but then if the mind starts forming connections with it as to you know expecting more pain and ruminating and thinking about everything that they can't do because of the pain and so they're just creating more and more neural connections with the initial uh, sensation um, I don't know if I mean I'm just uh, giving out some maybe crazy neurophysiology theories here but do you think is that kind of what you meant by the the pain and then times whatever it is the resistance
2: and the rumination gives out the intense experience of suffering? For sure. So that that's really you know in and it's kind of the way I I look at it in a sense. You know, I, I, as I mentioned in chronic pain management, we you know and and just to to sort of give you a perspective, I, I run mindfulness. Groups with chronic pain sufferers, and it, it's it's not just meditation, but it's really a very structured program which involves education around the origins of chronic pain, um, meditation experience, and kind of exploring the relationship that people have with their pain. But at the same time, in my my practice, I still prescribe medications, and I still do injections, and I and I still do, do all those other things. But the way I I, I sort of. Conceptualize it as like I said before: suffering equals pain times um, everything else. So I feel the medication, the injections, all that stuff is trying as best to address the pain, and the mindfulness and the meditation is also addressing all of the other aspects. Uh, it's not that clear cut, but that's sort of um, sort of the idea. And, and the last thing I would say about it is that, um, and, and you know, this is back to sort of a question you had earlier about how this is perceived in, in the medical world. Well, if you look at chronic pain management, a lot of the medications that we use in chronic pain management are not, um, are not analgesic medications per se. So they're not opioids and things like that. We're, we're using antidepressants and antiepileptics. And we're using medications that are actually trying to change the brain chemistry in certain parts of, of the of the brain. Now, if you look at what that brain chemistry is being changed, it makes sense that mindfulness and meditation is actually targeting uh, similar areas. And f- a funny thing, I, I, a couple of years ago, I was at a um, a Christmas dinner party. I promised it'll take ten seconds. That you're probably thinking, "Oh my god, where is he going with this?" But um, I was I was having I was sitting down next to a neurosurgeon who does consultations in our clinic. Who I didn't know very well. And um, at one point she asked me, What's, I heard you're doing this mindfulness program. So of course thinking, oh my goodness, how am I going to explain this to a neurosurgeon You know what this is about? So I kind of briefly stumbled through and explain to her what I'm doing. And why I'm telling this is because she turned to me and these were her words and she goes, oh, and this is, sorry, I didn't, what I didn't preface is this is a neurosurgeon. One of her roles at our clinic is she does neuromodulation. So she goes in and, and, and she installs probes in people's backs, but also in people's brains. But she turned to me and she said, oh, she goes, you're doing neuromodulation. You're you're basically doing the exact same thing I do it, I'm doing, but we're just, we're coming at it a different way. So I think, I think that's probably what's happening in, in chronic pain management.
1: That's really interesting. Um... I, I'm kind of a, part of a research project and in, in interested in psychedelic psych, uh, psychotherapy and it actually addresses some of the same targets as mindfulness now that you're discussing them. They're like the default mode network um, and they're using uh, some of these tools uh, in research, not in practice yet, um, to address some of these to- the concept of total pain. Um, I assume for you, it's not just physical pain that people are dealing with when they're chronic pain patients. Um, You're kind of addressing, like uh, I'm getting a sense, uh, a person's total pain, their physical pain, their suffering, existential, all of it. And, And what I'm finding interesting in what you're saying is you seem to suggest that mindfulness can target kind of all of these areas, not just physical pain. Is that correct?
2: Um, yeah, I would say, I think that's a a great way to summarize and what, what I would also say, and, and again, this is why I haven't, I don't think that, um, medications and injections and all the other things are not important, but, but there's one thing that's certainly true and this is not, you know, across the board, but, um, when there are deeper origins of suffering in someone's, uh, general state, you can give them the best medications in the world and the best injections in the world. There's, and They're only going to go so far. At the same time, if you're able to address some of those other things, uh, and by addressing first, got to be aware that they're even there, but when you are aware of them and you can address them, your medications and your injections actually tend to work a lot better. So it's really not about replacing those, but about um, uh, really addressing some of the, the underlying issues that are there that have contributed to why you know the, the chronic pain and this is a this is comes from john cabozin chronic pain is a whole systems problem it's not a body problem
1: and i imagine um you know with not a lot of clinical experience but just what we learn in class i imagine that Chronic pain patients can be challenging uh, in managing given – not challenging in their personality or anything, just in the management of their cases. They're complicated by these same factors that you mentioned earlier. How do you find that they respond when a lot of the times – I'm assuming by the time they get to you, they've tried every, uh, everything in the book – how are they responding when you do present mindfulness as a potential therapy? Is it something that many of them dismiss, or is it something uh, that they're receptive to?
2: Um, well, I'll give you a sort of a two-piece answer to that. So the first thing is the way they come to my program. Depending on the different places that I work, some one of, sometimes they're referred by their physician, um, and sometimes they self-refer. So, you know, you're, the reason I mention that is it's going to be a bit different. Those who are looking for this kind of thing are usually perhaps more uh, inclined and open or looking for alternative ways. Those who are referred, some of those are a little bit more skeptical, um, but I think, and that this is where, it, where it's essential, is really to, um, it, if you're going to be working with mindfulness and meditation, in particular in chronic pain management, you really have to take a lot of time to help people understand what mindfulness and what meditation is, and where their chronic pain comes from. So it's re- it's not about getting together on day one and you know spending forty five minutes doing a body scan. That that doesn't work. You, you do that, and you can be sure by class two, no one's going to come back. You really have to uh, gradually uh, ease people into uh, the work uh, and really give them a, a foundation into understanding what mindfulness and meditation is. Uh, and then the um, and and then bringing it to chronic pain. Um, what I can tell you though, which is essential, which is uh, re- I was I was about to say it's not related to mindfulness, but it absolutely is related to mindfulness. You know, we're we're talking now a lot about uh, mindfulness in a very specific context, but to bring you back to mindful medical practice, it was it was it was brought to medical students um, by. Dr. Hodgson and Dr. Lieben, for really for for many purposes but one of them was really about helping future physicians be better doctors and be better clinicians and at the core of that is the you know highlighting the importance of becoming a better listener uh, realizing that it's not you're not just born a good listener it's not into one of these things that we we you know people thought that you just kind of I don't know how you would develop it, but you, you don't. You, you really can learn how important it is. So, mindfulness is about helping in that context be aware of what's going on in the interaction, being a better listener, and then expressing that. And why I bring that in is because if there's one thing that chronic pain sufferers will often tell you, and you, ma- you mentioned, Patrick, that they've seen many people and things haven't always gone well. And unfortunately, one of the common themes that comes out in the groups that I work with is that along the way, they really did not feel that anyone was listening to them or believing them or questioning them. So that, that already, just being present with them and listening to them and acknowledging that, that their pain is real and that they're suffering is a huge piece. And, and already from there, then you can move on
1: yeah it's interesting to think of it it benefiting both sides of the equation it allows us to be better practitioners and it allows the patient some um, empowerment back into their own care too like i like the thought of uh, a mindfulness approach for patients in the sense that i think sometimes when they come in to the kind of western medical system it's always us you know doing things for them to them Uh, and to me mindfulness uh, putting it putting kind of the healing back into the patient's hands um, you know the power is partly within you to me it's a it's a nice thought that we don't always see um, can you can you kind of give us an example of you know just as we're winding down the conversation here uh, a mindful interaction you know that you've had that you um, whether it was a patient kind of finding mindfulness or you just an interaction with a patient where you can say like, this is a positive example of mindfulness in practice. Um, So a young trainee like us can think like, when is, when, you know, I hate to think that we're, you know, when can we be mindful? But I do think there is, it it is nice to have that response and think like, you know, it's time to take a mindful approach into this next interaction. So could you model one for us?
2: Yeah so listen i'll i'll give you i'll give you sort of a general statement and, I'll, and maybe i'll give you an example of that kind of sticks out that might might speak to you. so i i think you're right i mean as best as we can we'd like to be mindful with every encounter that we have um and you know as what i would say is that it doesn't necessarily require more effort to be present and mindful than it does to be absent minded right because that's kind of the opposite it it's it, it's it's you don't you don't it shouldn't necessarily be something that you're doing on top of being there just being there you you're you can be mindful having said that when you know when in when life gets busy and you're running around and and you're trying to multitask uh, it's hard to be, to bring presence so um one thing that I think is important is to always try as best as you can to know why, why is your patient there and what, what are their needs, right? And we often, and especially, we are, we are trained to a certain extent to, um, to look at what do we need to get. So, what, what history do I need? What physical exam do I need? What, you know, all that stuff which is important of course but at the same time what is what does the, the patient looking for so that that's true I think in any interaction that someone's coming to see you for for whatever I'll give you a, a, a sort of a different example I, it's, I think this is an example I gave I, I gave a um, give I gave a talk once to uh, I think first year medical students and I gave them the example because it was fresh in my mind but I think it, some students told me that they appreciate it so I'll share it with you here so this was probably a couple years ago. I um I do calls sometimes uh, at a rehab hospital, and I got uh, the call that you really wish you don't get when you're in a rehab hospital when they call a code blue. And the reason you never want to get a code blue, but when you're in a rehab hospital um, in the evening or at night, and you're, there's a code blue, there's no code team. You're it. So I'm not a I'm not an Emerge doc. I don't run codes. So um, as soon as I heard a code blue. Uh, of course, I kind of sprung into action, but as best as I can, I I think I was able to be in touch with um, my physical sensations. My heart was pounding, my hands were sweating. You know, typical stress response, but I was aware of it. Right. So as I'm. Uh, Pretty much running to the floor that I had to go to. I was aware. Okay, I'm I'm feeling the sensation. So I, I was trying as best as I can to bring mindfulness. Now, again, I wasn't it wasn't a removing my stress, but I was aware of it. When I go- walked into the room, um, the staff that was there, the nurses and the and the orderlies and everyone had sort of started um, started uh, CPR, and I think that I was because I was able to be present in the moment I didn't sort of lose all my wits ends and the first thing that I asked was do we have a code status on this patient which I and the reason I bring that up is because I think if I was sort of stuck in my algorithms of, of ACLS and all that it probably wouldn't even occur to me so someone ran out got the chart uh, brought back the chart and they realized that this patient had already was had, had um, given the request that they did not want to be resuscitated um, so everything stopped in terms of resuscitation. So that was one piece where I think mindfulness was helpful. The other thing where I think it was helpful too is I realized in the moment that there was this was a really difficult situation for the staff involved. This is these are not this is not a healthcare facility that's used to having codes. So they were feeling awkward because they uh, weren't sure if they did the right thing, then they felt even more awkward because they never, because they didn't think about checking codes. Anyways, all to say is I realized in that moment that we really needed to debrief. And, you know, doing a debrief after a code is nothing new, but often the debrief is sort of how did things go? But this was more about how did things go more on a sort of personal level. And the last piece is, of course, we then had to speak with a family member. So I had to speak in the middle of the night to a family member who I'd never spoken to, I'd never met this patient and, and as you can imagine, explain things. So, um, I'm just giving you a scenario that is not that uncommon for f- physicians in some areas, in some fields, to, to be confronted with. Um, and when you have some ability to bring mindfulness to those moments, you're, I think, more likely to be able to shift and to bring your attention in different ways to what's needed in the particular and I, I gave you sort of different different pieces of where I was needed and where I had to intervene and I don't know that I did it all of them perfectly. I Actually, I'm quite sure I didn't do any of them perfectly but at least I think I was aware of what was needed or as best as I could what was near, needed in the situation.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, so we'll ask one last question just kind of uh, because it's the topic of the moment. But, you know, with the COVID pandemic, a lot of the medical students, medical trainees have had, you know, things have kind of been flipped on their heads. There's a lot of stress and anxiety about that for I personally found when we were off, having gone through the MMP program and just learned a bit about mindfulness, how much more comfortable I was being present in that moment. Do you have any tips um for some of the students that maybe haven't gone through that uh, part of the curriculum yet in terms of how to just remain mindful deal with this kind of anxiety that they may be facing regarding the program and all the changes that they're facing
2: yeah sure um well first thing i'm i'm really glad patrick to hear that um just from MMP and, and probably from other experiences you've had in your life that, that are you were able to draw on something there. And, and, and as you know, MMP is really um, there f- with many layers to it, um, of which one of them certainly, I think, does address um, personal well-being. But again, in the context of, of being a clinician. Um, so um, And the ability to access mindfulness and training uh, obviously, it goes well beyond MMP for anyone who, who would be interested in it uh, for, for personal reasons, but I mean, I, I hate even making a distinction between personal and professional because you are who you are, whether you're at home with your family or whether you're on a hospital ward. Um, with regards to the pandemic, uh, I think it's certainly been a difficult time for everyone, regardless of... of, of uh, who you are, where you are, and for different reasons. Uh, And one of the big challenges, I think, that underlies what's been going on in the last few months is uncertainty, right? For for some people, there have been other challenges beyond uncertainty, and, of course, people who have been sick and and that sort of thing. But for many, many people, it's been uncertainty. Um, Mindfulness doesn't mean that we develop that you can develop the ability to enjoy every moment of your life again it's not the idea of positive thinking but it is the idea of am I able to be okay with what's going on that's really at it at the core right and and I say okay it's not what am I it's not turning every negative into a positive it's just can I just be with what's going on and just be okay with it um, and ultimately, in times of uncertainty, uh, I think that's really valuable because we can never control our futures as much as we think we might. But I think the last few months for, for people who really strive to control every moment of the day and every every uh, you know every goal and it was it was all thrown out the window to a certain extent because there was a, a, a huge loss of control. And again, just if we can just sit back and, Can I I be okay with uncertainty? And again, right back to the core of what mindfulness is, it's about being in the present moment. So I think when you are able to be in the present moment, it actually can be quite reassuring when you're in difficult times. Because especially when it comes to this pandemic, we don't know what tomorrow will hold. We never know what tomorrow will hold, but this is is really bringing it to to the foreground. So... Um, can I be uh, present with whatever is going on right now, and and just you know it's it's a bit cliché to say take it one day at a time, but take it one day at a time is usually very good advice, and it, it's sort of colloquial expression, but I think it really does speak to what mindfulness is about. It's not it's not even one day at a time; it's really one moment at a time.
1: Yeah, and it's um, I found some of the tools that we learned in the MMP course. Um, Again, they were you know, for clinicians or for medical practice, but I did feel that, you know, that that ability to kind of just sit there and say, like, m- I remember one of the concepts was the difference between a reaction and a response and realizing that the reaction is fine. It, it's, it it's, this is hard to go through, you know, for everyone, but in terms of as from a medical student perspective, you're losing electives, your program, you're losing class time, you're everything that you thought that you, like you said, had perfect control of up until before this all started is gone. And so realizing it's okay to be stressed by that, but how do you then kind of respond from that? And, and so to me, that was, you know, even though it was a professional course, being able to take those things away and and realize that you can be mindful in your relationship with your partner, with your uh, friends, like mindfulness doesn't just exist in anyone's fear. Um,
2: yeah, for sure. And, you know, to, to, you're speaking to, again, what to me is one of the probably the, the, the most important lessons I've learned from mindfulness, which is that mindfulness at its core is really about creating choices and, 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 and choices that, are, that already exist, but that we don't see because we're so stuck in the moment. And because like you, like you say, we're, we're reactive. And again, not, it's not about beating ourselves up because we're getting stressed or we're getting angry or we're getting upset or whatever. It's about acknowledging, oh yeah, this stresses me out. Well, yeah, of course, it's stressful. Now now that I realize I'm stressed, what can I do? What choices do I have? And then once you have choices, choices really, I think, does it, it is an sig- important contributing factor to decreasing anxiety and, and certainly in the face of uncertainty. And we don't have choices in everything, but he, you can certainly have small choices that you can that become more available, and that you, when you're able to see them.
1: Yeah, and it's so true, and it circles back to Hanson's earlier point. When you know, when we we're just anxious, we're stressed, we don't, we aren't able to be mindful, and then our reaction is often a mindless response, and just creates this kind of vicious circle. So. Um, Yeah, so, you know, that's about it for our time today. Uh, It's been an incredible hour speaking with you, Dr. Steverman. Thank you so much for sharing your insight with us. Um, It's really important topic, I think, for us to hear about uh, from professionals like yourself, putting it into practice, as well as for us just to kind of discuss it and teach it from us students to other students as well. So hopefully... Um, If listeners will tune in and you can check out our website at mcgillmedmindfulness.ca for future podcasts as well and other resources. Um, But most importantly, thank you again, Dr. Steverman, and to everyone listening, stay mindful. Thank you for now. Have a
2: good one. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure.